This episode of the Gondrepreneur Podcast is made possible by 420 friendly service providers in the Gondrepreneur Business Directory. If you need professional help with your business, from accounting to legal services to consulting, marketing, payment processing, or insurance, visit gondrepreneur.com slash businesses to find service providers who specialize in helping cannabis entrepreneurs like you. Visit the Gondrepreneur Business Directory today at gondrepreneur.com slash businesses. Hey there, I'm your host, T.G. Brandfault, and thank you for listening to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast, where we try to bring you actionable information and normalize cannabis through the stories of Gondrepreneurs, activists, and industry stakeholders. And today, I'm absolutely thrilled uh, and a little bit nervous, joined by Sister Kate. She's the a founder of Sisters of the Valley, subject of the documentary Breaking Habits. Uh, she produces CBD products in Merced County, California. She has an amazing story. Uh, the film that she was uh, the subject of was, I mean, it, it gives me chills just sitting here sort of thinking about it. I mean, when we talk about activists, uh, we really have, uh, I mean, the, the, one, of, one of the best, uh, a truly remarkable person. Sister Kate, thank you for coming on the show. How are you today? Thank you. That was a really uh, warm uh, welcome, Tim. Thank you. I'm glad to be back here. And I think when you're saying somebody's an activist, you don't say they're good. You say they're badass. <laughs> uh, I, well, I'm a little bit tongue-tied. Um, so, so before we sort of get into get, get into uh, you know what's what's going on, uh, to, and without giving too much away, so people you know want to you know watch the film, tell me a little about bit about yourself and uh, you know your background. So I had a pretty, you know, I got my degree in business education in Wisconsin, a red state. I came out of university uh, a Republican because that's the way they make you sometimes when you don't know very much about the world. And I mean, I even voted for, for Ronald Reagan once. Um, so I was pretty like in my own bubble. I believed a lot of the baloney about, you know, that poor people are poor because they don't work hard enough. And I just believed a lot of baloney. That was just not true. Very, very solid misconceptions about America and how the deck is stacked against the poor in America. And even in the, you know, seventies and, and I think I graduated from university in 81, you know, there was still this sort of hostility and I was sort of on the side of the stupid. I, I, I took down the road, I took an assignment in Europe. I ended up spending almost a decade in the Netherlands with my children. And you don't really get to see America for what America is out until you leave it. Sometimes you can't see your own family for what it is until you leave them. Sometimes you can't see your own enclave or business for what it is until you leave them. So it was leaving and living in Europe and getting like a fresh perspective on my country that totally changed me. But it also gave me a fresh perspective on functional socialism sitting side by side with functional capitalism. And uh, so it changed how I felt about things. And then when I came back to America in 2007, right before the banking crisis, I could see that my country, I had done a lot of traveling in Europe with my children and my husband, and we could easily see the difference between a conquered peoples and the conquerors. So look at England, look at Ireland. Ireland's a shabby version of England. Look at Malta, look at Sicily. Malta's a shabby version of Sicily. Everywhere you go in Europe, you can see the difference between 
the conquered people. And the conqueror, when I came back to America, it looked like we were conquered people. It looked to me like we had become the Middle East, where we had no history of cooperating with our government, no history of working together, that the people work against the government, the government works against the people. And now here we are sort of in a country with trash from sea to shining sea. I, it's it's super insightful. I, you describe yourself in the film as as an anarchist, and um, is, is that representative of sort of your your political philosophy at this point? No, it's not not really because you, when people think of anarchists, they think about throwing tea over the harbor, and I wish we wouldn't have thrown the tea because then we would at least have national health care, right? And so anarchists usually think of not paying taxes where we're all about paying taxes. We think our farm towns are creating generations of meth addicts because there's nothing for our children to do in these small towns. And so we're about paying taxes. Uh, 14% of every dollar we earn goes in taxes in some form or another. So we're not really anarchists from that standpoint, but we are anarchists against the patriarchy. We are anarchists against those who are marginalized. Um, we're anarchists in the way that we started our business without a permit. And four and a half years later, we still don't have a permit. Even though we're paying our sales tax and our payroll tax and our federal taxes and blah, blah, blah. We don't have a local permit to operate here, which is also part of the theme of the movie. And it's four and a half years into it. We still don't have a permit. But neither has anyone tried to shut us down. So from that standpoint, we get to claim anarchists, I guess. We're anarchists from the standpoint that our county says it is not legal to grow cannabis plants outdoors. You have to pay PG&E for fake lighting to grow something that's natural. And we go, oh, no, no, no. We're growing 36 and we're growing them outdoors. But we're not like the cartel where we have 36 acres. <laughs> we have well, Our 36 represents like an eighth of an acre of plants, right? And And so we are anarchists. I think we can claim the title in sort of a Grade school way. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you told me about you told me about you know how your thinking sort of evolved on America, right? It, due to due to living in in, uh, in Europe, uh, how did your thinking evolve ultimately on cannabis? You go from voting to Reagan. Um, yeah, it's insane stuff, hey? Yeah, no, I remember the first guy that I my I had a starter husband that lasted eighteen months in Chicago. The uh, Iran-Contra affair lasted longer than that marriage did. But <laughs> I remember I remember that when I went to visit him, I arrived at his apartment for the first time. I was actually spending a weekend at his apartment in Chicago. And I arrived and he had a roommate. And his roommate was uh, rolling a joint at the kitchen table. And I went straight through into the bedroom, locked the door, called him at work and asked him why he would leave me alone in an apartment with a rapist and a druggie. And so I really, I equated the fact that he's smoking weed, I'm alone in this apartment, he's going to rape me. Honest to God, that's how juvenile my thinking was when I was about 20 years old. Um, so it was living in, it was later realizing that I come from a long line of alcoholics. Um, my father's an alcoholic. I, at any one time, I have relatives trying to kill themselves through alcoholism. So it was really about the age of 24 or 25 that I went, you know, hangovers are stupid and I like to party and I'm in business and there's a lot of partying that goes on in business and I'm done. And I started smoking weed as recreational in place of drinking alcohol. And then it wasn't until much, much later that I was go that I go going through menopause that my doctor in the Netherlands said, I couldn't sleep. And he said, do you smoke weed? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, not enough. 
you need to smoke more. (laughs) You need to to cut out the alcohol, cut out the caffeine and smoke a whole joint before you go to bed at night. And I was like, okay. And then my symptoms magically went away. And um, that started, I was like 40 some years old. So that started to give me an appreciation of the cannabis plant as more than just an alternate recreational drug but also as something that could actually be beneficial. But that was sort of my own self journey. So it's funny you mentioned alcohol. I actually don't drink alcohol and I, and I consume cannabis and I, and um, you know, and, and it's because I had a problem and, and I used cannabis as sort of an exit drug from alcohol. Um, in your, in the, in the documentary, you know, we do, we do get a look at, at your son who struggles with addiction and ultimately uh, uses cannabis. It appears as an exit drug is, is, is what was that like for you as, as, as a parent and, 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 you know, somebody who has such a deep personal relationship with cannabis? Well, I think that the movie makes it look like the cannabis was the gateway drug that got him to meth and then cannabis was the gateway drug off of meth. And I think the movie completely misses the point. Um, my son was 15 years old and came home with his eyes dilated and thinking the roof was talking to him from school, from some random pharmaceuticals that at 15 years old, someone he got in high school, someone just gave him. So it was at that age that I said to Alex, um, don't do that. Don't tend to all my boys quit relying on the world out there to give you clean meds. You're going to die from this. And if you grow, if I will let you smoke whatever. So I sort of made a deal with my son at that point. So that all happened with my son long before the sisterhood. And the movie kind of tosses my life into like sisterhood soup, in my opinion. So you don't really get a feeling for how things went down. It was at that point that we I had a family meeting with the boys and the 15 year old was the youngest and said, look, if you grow me vegetables, you can grow weed and you can smoke all you want as long as you take four core classes. Some of them were in high school, some of them were college, four core classes, English, science, social studies, math, as well as a foreign language, as well as a musical instrument and do one volunteer service a week that lasts three hours. And you have to do this, this, and this as far as chores around the farm. And if you do all of that, I will not regulate your cannabis use. So my vision of what happened with my 15-year-old son was first the pharmaceuticals got him, and then I used cannabis to make sure the pharmaceuticals didn't get to keep him. And then that was at 15, and then at 20, he's at university thinking he's buying Molly, and the Molly man's selling him meth, which he should have known better anyway. I wouldn't, I'm abhorred that any college kids trust any drug dealer to come in with something they'd snort and put in their body. That's just so appalling to me. But he did the same and came out of school his second year a full-blown meth addict. But he wasn't living with me at the time. And I kind of believe that if that kid would have always had access to weed, he would have never done that other. But he wasn't allowed to have weed. They weren't even allowed to smell like weed in the university. And if he ever tried to get weed, he was always getting in trouble. So he goes for the stuff that doesn't smell and that won't get you in trouble, but that will make you die. Molly cut with meth or Molly, uh, uh, meth fakely called Molly. So... I mean, I didn't. I, I when I was watching the film, I, I I didn't sort of get that sense that you know cannabis. But I'm also you know a very cannabis positive person um, who uh, has seen. Oh, you didn't you know, get the sense. You didn't get the sense that me being cannabis uh, caused my son to go be a meth addict. 
I, I did. I personally did not get that sense. Okay, good. Um, okay, good. I, yeah, but, but I do want to ask, you know, I grew up in a, in a household that, you know, my mother abhorred drinking and I drank uh, a lot, um, you know, to excess all of the time. And, you know, she always said I would much rather you smoke cannabis. Um, and it I took love an <laughs> so, so I grew up in a very cannabis positive household. Um, can you sort of tell me about your experience raising children in sort of a cannabis positive household? I, uh, I just, my kids were real smart little kids being raised in Holland and going to school where they had to speak only Dutch. Uh, so I just remember when we had to come visit America, I would have a little talk with them and explain that Americans are insane. And you know these little cigarettes that mama has on her desk that you guys see every once in a while? They're like, yes. If they know in America that mama has this, they'll take me away from you forever. They'll put me in jail and throw away the keys of my little kids. So they're like the second, third, fourth graders with their mouths open like, wow. Yeah, it's insane. So we can't talk about it when we're over there. So I guess I started conditioning my children at a young age to cultural differences and I also told them when they get mad at me, you know, you could just turn me into American police. <laughs> <laughs> and they would always look at me like, I'm insane. Uh, but yeah, no, it was just kind of like, this is an herb. This is mama's medicine. And, uh, and I, but also I smoked cigarettes. And it wasn't until I discovered CBD cannabis that I was able to use that to give up cigarettes. And my children from children from like 10 years old or younger know how harmful tobacco is thanks to our propaganda machine. Um, but they don't know that maybe this cannabis is helping you give up addictions. And there's many, 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 I get a kick out of the newspapers. They ask me how many people I got off addictions with cannabis. And I'm like, personally eight people. Now there's thousands of people that have written us and told us, but there's only eight that have personally come to us and said, sisters, help, help me get off my meth or my heroin or whatever. And we're like, okay, dude, we're going to turn you into a stoner, though. And you have to be okay with that for some period of time. And and then we work with them. And and so you have uh, people in the sisterhood, the, the, the rage, the age range, you know, and, and then you have the children. I mean, who, who are adults now, but what, what did you notice sort of from generation to generation with the people that you sort of deal with, the, the people who you help? Um, as it relates to cannabis, are there a lot of differences in how people well, I think? I find that the, the kids, my, my kids that went through universities that stayed at UC campuses and went through university are so much more careful, cautious, and paranoid, my millennium, than I ever was. I mean, I smoked weed at every major airport in the world. <laughs> I always positioned myself about 10 feet upwind from the nearest cops or security, and I would pull out my joint and smoke it everywhere and and my son got so mad at me for vaping on an airplane we just took a trip together and he's like 26 now and he's an engineer on the coast and i say to him because there's a bunch of turbulence and we're on this plane that's about to land and i know he's got a vape pen and i'm not very much of a fan of vape pens i like my joints i'm old school but i'll have them if i'm nervous or upset or something so i say to him can i have a hit of your vape pen this turbulence is getting to my stomach and he says to me Oh, for crying out loud, we're landing in 15 minutes. You can just wait. Like he's the dad and I'm the kid. And his girlfriend poked him and said, give your mother your baby. <laughs> so I just think they're far more, more conventional. And I think that the university, I blame the universities for taking the hippie free living spirit out of our millennials. <laughs> um, 
so in the film too, there's there's this one scene where where you're having sort of a conversation with a, uh, a, a Christian, I'm not sure, a religious person, and a street I, pastor, a street pastor. <laughs> I, I'm wondering how often does does that happen to you? And then on the flip side, how often do regular people mistake you for uh, Catholic? No. Okay, so first of all, we don't go out much. All of our all of our medicine is made in a cloistered environment here on the farm at a private address. We have a we rent a number of public addresses. All of our medicine goes through the mail to the U.S. and around the world. So our lives are pretty. We're not out much to be running into the public. Yet we are activists, so we go out to protest. When we're out at protests, we're with our own people. Now it maybe wasn't like that four years ago. But when, whenever we're at a protest, we're with our own people. No one confuses us for a Catholic nun, and they all know who we are. It wasn't always like that, but that's how it is now. Um, yes, we get, um, in the, I'd say I haven't been accosted by a street minister since that filming. That was like the last one. Uh, because most people now know who we are, and we're more likely to get the question, are you the real weed nuns? Are you the weed nuns from California? <laughs> We're, I say now it's more likely that a Catholic nun will be asked if she's a weed nun than it is we'll be asked if we're Catholic. Uh, did you have any hesitations about being filmed for that documentary? Um, I hated it. I hated every moment of it. And um, I found it was so invasive and I felt like I was being manipulated all the time, even though I probably wasn't. It was, you know, just paranoia that what do you want? And why is your camera in my face? And why do you have to follow us walking past palm trees? And don't tell us we're brilliant. Quit telling us we're brilliant. We handle really hard problems. Walking under palm trees in a row does not make us brilliant. So I found everything about the filming annoying. And yet uh, with a, the calling, we feel we're everyone here, all the sisters serving together. We all feel seriously that we have a calling or we wouldn't do this. And so our calling requires that we pretty much say yes to any media opportunity, whether they're going to be nice or hostile, whether they're going to flip us or not. They're putting our face out there. And we do have a lot of trust in the people not to believe everything they see. We feel like with the entering in of the age of the divine feminine comes the entering in of the age of divine truth and authenticity. We feel that the reason we have Trumps and the reason we have racists leaders right now is because of this need for authenticity. They're horrible, but they're honest. And right now people want that. So I think, uh, yeah, I didn't want to do the film. I didn't like anything about it. I was getting a lot of offers. Um, I chose Rob because he was a well-respected uh, BBC documentary filmmaker. And I chose him because I felt like the content needed an outside of America view. The Valley needed an outside of America view. And I think he was, he gave me all that. So you, you mentioned sort of briefly your, your sort of overarching philosophies and you do have vows uh, of some sort. Uh, can you sort of tell me more uh, about sort of those philosophies and the vows and just sort of the, the, the life that you live in the sisterhood? Yeah. I said this terrible thing to a UK times reporter yesterday. I so regret it. Sometimes I just need someone around to lever my mouth for me. So he was here for four hours and I never had anybody dig into me so much, like so much detail on timelines and stuff. So he had really worn me out. And as we were leaving, as he was leaving, 
he stopped three times and said to me, sister, do you see, do you seriously see yourself doing this for the rest of your life? And I said, yes, absolutely. And then we got to like the second house where he had to pick up his equipment. And he said, sir, sister, do you, do you seriously see yourself doing this for the rest of your life? And I went, yes, I told you I do. And the third time when we were walking out the front door, he asked me, I said, why not? I said, I'm sure at some point I'm going to have my own apartment and two young men taking care of me or something <laughs> equally as awful. And I know that's going to end up like being on the uh, at the punchline to his story in England. Could you take that out there? It might be banking solutions to so just tell him. Sorry about that. It's okay. So anyway, yes, we take vows. Yes, we're serious women. So we are patterned after our Beguine mothers. And the reason we're patterned after them is because they were the first organized nurses in the castles of Europe starting in about the year 600. And they made, uh, they farmed. So they had an off the grid farming operations, but they also had an, uh, an apartment in every castle where they tended to the sick and provided their hemp soaps, hemp textiles, uh, cannabis medicines, and other uh, herbal medicines. No Just way. like the Beguines in the castles of Europe, when they had to step back, when the king's son had epilepsy and they had to step back and let the white, pasty, middle-aged, balding men come in and put leeches on the king's son while they had herbal medicine that would have helped him in their basket, we feel in kinship with them because we have to stand back and watch the medical system put harmful pharmaceuticals and chemo and radiation into people without acknowledging at all the benefits of plant-based medicine. So we're in kinship with them that way. We're in kinship with them because they basically went extinct at the Inquisition or turned into Catholic nuns because uh, it was either be Christian or die. And the Beguines were scholars of all religions and they would not affiliate themselves with any one religion. They would not, they believed in women owning property and in women owning businesses. So they were creating paths for women to own stuff. So then women could have political power too. So we are not nuns. We are really begging revivalists. We are the precursors to the nuns. I believe that there is no coincidence between the fact that St. Scholastica founded her order in 880 and about that same time, Gutenberg came out with his press and the first book ever printed was the Bible. And now all of a sudden you've got the Inquisition ramping up. And I believe that uh, St. Scholastica was actually in her heart, a, Be a Beguine sister from a Beguine enclave or wanted to be a Beguine. And she had to create an order that had the women living in isolation, not having access to books or study living poor and off the alms of the people, living celibate. She created something to survive the Inquisition. That's what she created. But I think that if she could have been born again after the Inquisition, she would have created something much more in line than what I've created, which is a spiritual operation, a women empowering operation, and a path to women ownership of businesses, which is in the path to being able to make laws, which is in the path to creating compassion for people in the planet. Um, I wish they had talked about more about that in the film. They didn't because they got as far as the shooting and that's all they wanted to talk about. And now they want to do a follow-up and I don't want to. I'm like, no, I'm no, <laughs> that was painful the way it was. And I lost banking because of that film. January 8th, the trailer was released. And January 8th, we got a letter from our bank of four and a half years saying, sorry, 
you got a bank elsewhere. And they gave me a multitude of reasons and I fought it for four months. But last night at midnight, we lost banking. We essentially have to shut down our business or beg. So we're on GoFundMe and we're begging right now. And if you don't mind me plugging, it's called Save-The-Sisterhood. It'll pop up. It's us and somebody, so the other, ours is Save the Sisterhood from Banking Attack. The other one is Save the, some a mouse that needs to get an operation. Um, so whatever, <laughs> that's cool. that's the world of GoFundMe. But I, I want to get back to answering your question. Uh, yes, the movie treated us like we're, I think, a little gangster. The putting the gun in my hand when we're not gun women, that I felt very manipulated over. And I let them talk me into it based on the fact that I really did have a gun to guard my first crop. I really did do that. So they're like, Sister Kate, you got a gun to guard your first crop. So you should let us at least get one image of you with a gun in your hand. But they weren't supposed to put me in the film that way. And they weren't supposed to be things, putting things I said, like, I'll do whatever it takes uh, to protect what I've built when I was thinking about running for sheriff. When I said those words, I was thinking about running for sheriff. I wasn't thinking about shooting anybody. So that's what I meant about feeling manipulated and not really want to do it yet. But back to our vows. Let's talk about our vows, okay? Because you okay. asked me that. We take six vows, and they spell the acronym SOLAS. Um, as so service to the people, number one. Second is obedience to the cycles of the moon and the quarters of the year. We call them the corners of the year. Um, and today is Beltane, by the way. Um, <laughs> so happy Beltane. Um, thank you. And, and, uh, happy Beltane to you. Thank you. Um, so service, obedience to the cycles of the moon and the quarters of the year. Living simply activism that's spending some time every week and month involved in, in uh, fighting for the marginalized or holding our politicians accountable, anything in that category. Uh, chastity. Our vow of chastity is a vow of privatizing our sexuality uh, for a number of reasons. One, we think the energy of sexuality and the energy of healing are opposite energies. Two, we feel like Muslim women are the only women that are dressing as our ancestral mothers did, and that makes them objects of persecution. Three, dressing as our ancient mothers is a morning meditation and being in touch with them and making them proud because many of them were burnt at the stake for being scholars and for being medicine makers. And, and there's probably more. It's, it's, it's super inspiring, really. Um, so I... I my last one after chastity and privatizing is ecology. And that is that every January we take um, a major step towards reducing our footprint. So it's usually a fourth quarter project where we're gearing up and spending money for whatever we have to do to convert to a more sustainable footprint, growing more food, canning. Uh, we got a plastic crushing machine so we can take our plastic coconut bottles and turn them into bricks and maybe build a chapel out of it. I don't know. We haven't decided. But <laughs> essentially, every uh, January 1st, our whole New Year's thing is all about another step towards living in better harmony with mother earth and less pollution and less footprint. You are living your best life and I'm too, I'm super jealous. Um, well, you're going to have to come visit us sometime. Bring your mama. <laughs> She'll never leave. Um, That's okay. I know. So, then, you'll, then you'll have a bunch of weed nun ants. <laughs> um, I can't wait to call her after this. Uh, so, when it comes to, at one time, did you cultivate THC? 
plants. Of course, of course. So can you tell me sort of about the your experience, you know, now that you're you're doing CBD only versus when you did THC and sort of your philosophies on the role of each in wellness? Uh, yes. So um, the TA, the CBD we're growing is no different than the THC I always grew. And when I say I, I use that word very loosely because I always have brothers or sons or agricultural people around me, usually men who do the growing and I claim all the credit. But um, so I don't actually, I mean, I'm more of a businesswoman. I'm more the person who creates the environment, the legal environment so that we can do this. And I'm a great appreciator of both THC and CBD. And I think that we are selling half the medicine to the people. We are half medicine women because we give out half the medicine, but we're doing what we can to get it to the most amount of people in whatever, whatever form we legally can do it in. But the, I grew teen HC and ran a nonprofit delivery service for three and a half years or four years. That was like before Sister Occupy and sort of during Sister Occupy. As I became Sister Occupy, I realized the nun uniform made a very uh, safe armor for me when I went into places that were very unsafe to deliver cannabis. And I realized I could go into the core. I could go into places where the hookers hung out. And if I was Sister Occupy, no one bothered me. So it, the, the, the persona started to mix during those years when I was running a THC business and I was really discovering my inner nun. I mean, I was taking medicine to dying people, people who couldn't sit straight, people who were seizuring so bad that when I'd get there, I'd sit and roll, get the cannabis in the pipe. Sometimes I would inhale it and blow it into their mouth to get them to calm down enough that, or to stop seizuring enough that, or shaking enough that they could get the weed. Uh, bring in the same guy a cigarette so he can have some tobacco who was hardcore all his life and now he's shaking so much he can't even have a cigarette. You know, doing whatever it did to reduce suffering in a non-judgmental way, that taught me how to be a nun. So it was really back in those days. I was growing THC. I was delivering THC. I didn't talk about CBD in those days. In those days, all the conversation was indica or sativa. That was it. Um, and I didn't know... Um, you know, hybrid or or more pure strain. I didn't know anything else. Um, when it when I was in 2014, though, after the fallout with my brother and after I had put down the nonprofit, and I still had a calling to the cannabis plant. I was like, damn, I don't want to go anywhere. I want to stay here in poor California and grow weed. I had such a calling for it. And I was so sad. For the year or two that I in there that I didn't have a crop, I was genuinely sad and depressed that I didn't have a crop. Nothing else bothered me as much. The loss of my brother, the loss of my family, the separation with my children, nothing bothered me as much as not having a crop growing. And I realized then that I have a calling and I have to make this happen. So I started doing research and I went, you know what? I want to be to the Central Valley with the early pomegranate and, and almond farmers and peach farmers who were when they came from Spain and Italy, they didn't just grow for themselves. They grew to export to bring money from the outside world to help them set up schools and streets in this poor Central Valley. I want to be like them and bring outside money into the Central Valley. So that's when I started researching strains that wouldn't get you high researching salves and tinctures that I might be able to ship to the rest of the world and might be able to bring in new money to this poor, poor farm community. Unbelievable. You were thinking so far ahead with, with regard to, you know, why you wanted to grow CBD um, 
I suppose the other people, but I mean, nothing, none of the reasons that you've given me for anything are the same reasons other people have for things, which is outstanding. Um, what are your opinions on California legalization? Well, that's funny because we were for Prop 64. We believe that if everybody would vote in their self, their own self-interest, democracy would actually work. Um, and so we voted for Prop 64 for a very simple reason. It, we're not in the THC business. None of those laws affect us. We even had the Bureau of Cannabis Control tell us that you're, you know, we know we're not industrial hemp. We know we're medical hemp, but they're like, for now, you're industrial hemp because we don't know where to put you. So, sorry, what was the question? Well, what's right. your opinion on legalization? Oh, so when it came to Prop 64, sorry, when it came to Prop 64, we took the simple position that we get visited by media all around the world. And it is illegal for me to hand over to the French reporter who's 38 years old, a THC joint when he comes to visit me. It's illegal. I could go to jail for that. So for the longest time when media visited us and they always asked, the media always wants to know everything about our smoking habits. So we got sassy and started asking them. So when a camera guy is here and he says, do you smoke weed every day, Sister Kate? I'll be like, yes, I do. Do you, Mr. Reporter Man? <laughs> so we always ask the question right back of them. And and funny, you know, probably 50% of those people smoke weed. So then we'd say, well, we can't give it to you. We can't give you a joint with THC in it because we could go to jail. But if you steal one off our desk, we won't report you. You know what I mean? Silly games. So we voted for Prop 64 just because we think anybody over 21, we actually think anyone over 14, has the right to have cannabis as a medicine and make their own decisions about that. What about the the federal farm bill that passed last year? Uh, you know, you, you grow, you don't grow THC plants. Did that give you sort of any security with regard to any federal enforcement that you might have yes. been worried about? Yes, the farm bill helped us because we get concentrates from a farm in Colorado, and we bring in plant from Oregon because we outgrew our own ability, and also the law here won't let us grow more than our little bit that we grow violating the law anarchists that we are our 36 plants they won't they won't let us grow so we import a lot of stuff so we've taken cover from the farm hemp bill for years now it was i was it went through some kind of official thing recently but it's always kind of been there for the last couple of years and so I, there were farm hemp certified farms and we work with them we make sure we work with only the certified farms for our plant material we're not certified so that's another way we break the law. Once a year, we make a batch with plant from our own backyard, and we're not certified. But um, we, we try to work with those, and that does give us some cover, but it hasn't helped us with banking. It hasn't helped us keep our banking. And that's, I mean, that's something that's coming at a, at a federal level. Um, is, I mean, I know that there was some talk in California about them basically building a state bank for uh, cannabis businesses. Have you heard anything about that? Yeah, I just this morning called our sales tax, you know, entity, the guys who are responsible for collecting sales tax, the guys we pay every month or they come out after you like the mafia, right? Yeah, yeah. I got off the phone with them to say my sales tax was due yesterday and I can't pay you because my bank account was shut down yesterday. And they said, you're going to have to convert your operations to cash. And I said, the reason why we don't need guns here or security here and the way the sisters feel safe here and we can sleep in RVs and yurts the reason why we're safe is we have no cash and no THC wheat. And she said, I'm sorry, we have no solutions. All the businesses are bringing us cash. And I'm like, dang, 
we should just go rob a sales tax office. They got, <laughs> you know? Um, taxation is theft anyway. Um, yeah, I, I want to sw- switch gears here quite a bit. Um, can we just briefly talk about your car? Oh, isn't Betsy a beauty? That is oh, I knew Betsy. she had a name like Betsy. Tell me about the car. Sister Betsy. She was born the same year as Sister Sierra, so they have a special affinity. Oh, Sister perfect. Sierra and Betsy are featured in um, a music video called Sex Weed TV, <laughs> done by Ollie Problemas, who is an up-and-coming L.A. singer who wants to be a sister. And How we haven't have you had that car? Uh, we've had it. Brother Dwight brought it for bought it for us. Brother Dwight bought it for us. We we first of all, we would be too ashamed to buy a car that 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 fuel efficient <laughs> when we have to take a vow of ecology. Yeah. So we couldn't buy it for that reason. But the brothers can buy us things. So Brother Dwight bought it for us. Brother Dwight had vanity plates put on, and Brother Dwight keeps her in an auto mechanic shop where she's well taken care of and well protected and we just bring her out like on Sunday she's old and she doesn't want to be on the firing line but we bring her out for Sunday drives we bring her out for sometimes a ride to the coast to go to dispensaries she's our special event driver I mean so the I mean with the car right the guns uh you know I mean you're not growing THC but I mean you're still growing you know cannabis I mean the the documentary did sort of make you seem gangster and that, and that can't be, that that can't be further from the truth. And, and, you know, I mean, I, when I was watching it, I was like, she, she is a badass, right? Um, you know, I was raised by a badass woman. You remind me of my mother vis-a-vis. Um, what's happened since the film wrapped up? Has your life changed because of it? Um, yeah, because the, well, right now we're like a threat of being put down because the bank took our banking away and we think that's directly related to the film. So there's that crisis that we're dealing with. Fortunately, uh, sometimes during crisis, you get to see the colors of people, right? And some people bail and some people rise to the top and we just are getting the most amazing outpouring of support from like investment bankers in the UK who want to just move a big amount of money into our account so we can survive this. Um, And so it's heartwarming the support we're getting, but it's in result of the fact that we're being put down. And that's a result of the fact of the movie making us look very gangster. My bank didn't care about us until they saw the gun in my hand. It's, uh, it's, I, I teach a media studies class and, and knowing, I mean, I'm, I'm going to use this whole thing as a case study. Um, you should, you should. Cause it's a very, we decided to come out. I really didn't want to come out about this because usually when I tangle with banks and because I, I was a business analyst, I worked with banks. I worked with Deutsche Telekom. I worked with some of the biggest banks in London as a consultant, as an analyst, as a problem solver, when they got stuck with internal debates, like is this pipe, that carries customer data from Moscow to Amsterdam, and we cut it over to the Middle East. Is everything going to fall apart, and are we going to get sued? So somebody had to go in and look at their plans and and bless them, and those were the kinds of things I did at banks. So normally my policy with banks is they kind of run the world, and you don't out them, and you don't be mean to them, and you don't protest them, not if you want it. But I had to come out about this, even though I haven't named my bank. I've had to come out about this because – 
Essentially, every day we are piling up money in the stratosphere with MasterCard, Visa, Discover, and American Express, and they're sitting on about $40,000 to $45,000 of our money. And we have no way to take that money and spend it right now because the bank just closed down. They will only deposit that money into a business account, and they just closed my business account. They will not deposit in a personal account. Because the credit card companies, after all, are working by rules too, banking rules. They are collecting the money under the name of Sisters of the Valley LLC. They cannot just dump it into Christine Mewson's account. So, you know, we're caught in this horrible, horrible situation. But let's let's say that the world bails us out. Let's say that the cavalry is coming. The bankster men of the patriarchy are going to find a solution for the weed nuns. And the public is going to support us through our GoFundMe Save the Sisterhood. For the two to four weeks, it's going to take this figure out. Then let's talk about how the film changed our lives. Because it has, from the standpoint of, I never before had media call me and demand an exclusive story on us. That was hilarious. We're like, we're a movement. Why would we ever give anybody an exclusive on anything? Um, the fact that we have an interview either on site or on the phone every day for the next 10 days. The fact that we've been gone on chitter, cheddar. Um, and what else? Where were we in L.A.? KTLA LA. That was hysterical. I didn't. I know so little about L.A. that I went down to be on KTLA, KTLA their largest morning show a TV program in LA with millions and millions of users. I didn't even put makeup on because I thought it was a radio thing. So I'm like, who cares? And then I get there and I find out that it's a panel of people and it's big TV. So yeah, I mean, it's changing our life from this way. I think the movie is helping us get introduced to the sisters and the brothers that can form enclaves around the world. I think that's incredibly important. And as much as I don't like hearing my voice or seeing my face, as much as I don't like the implications of being made gangster the message of what i'm doing has resonated with so many others who have done the same thing or had similar experiences that overall i think it's going to be great for the order do you think that you know i know that you said the filmmakers wanted to do a follow-up um but do you think that you might approach maybe another uh, documentary if it were somebody who you did have time to get to know and that that did sort of back you know had the same philosophies as you would that change yeah no I, I want some editorial control is all I just want editorial control it's my story so if I do do a film and I know these documentary filmmakers can't so if I do a film it's going to be like no I get to say what comes and goes because I don't like you guys messing with my brand. Here's the project we really want to do. Um, and it's really close to our heart. And we think we have the right production team for it now. Um, is like a Sisters of South Park kind of animated series. And of course, it wouldn't be South Park because we don't have the right to that. But when I say Sisters of South Park, that paints a picture to people. The Weed Nun series that we can be politically edgy, we can deal with ever latest thing, but you need a creative team that's turning that around real quickly. So Trump tweets something stupid, we get to respond to that. So at, at sort of a venue for me to share all my batshit sister stories, I have a blog actually called uh, Sister Mary Batshit Crazy. Wait, you have a blog called Sister Mary Batshit Crazy? No, no, I just read, I have a blog called Cannabis Hates in California. And my latest article that I did was called Sister Mary Batshit Crazy. And in that article, I listed all the forms of Sister Mary Batshit Crazy I've seen since I started this order. Because 
it's hilarious. There are funny, funny things that have happened out of respect for my sisters. I never talk about them because no one's going to want to become a sister if the head <laughs> nun is blabbing about everything that goes on in the order. So instead, I save my stories and every once in a while, you know, release a burst of crazy. And that got me the top rated animated production company's attention to say, hey, we want to talk about this because this would be funny. Like, and the sisters are very, very, very witty. They're very witty group of women, people who survive really hard times get chiseled into having sharp wit. We were leaving LA just to give you an example. This just cracked me up. We were leaving LA and we had this candle, big candle for the moon ceremony in LA that I didn't want to haul back. We had so much stuff to haul back. I'm like, this candle is staying here at Evan's house. It's a Airbnb. And I said, do you think Evan will want to keep it or will throw away? Because I was a little concerned because it was a sacred candle from a sacred ceremony. And Sister Sierra, I mean, Sister Alice says, I think he'll keep it because I scratched off the, the Jesus figure. <laughs> and and without, without hitting, missing a beat, Sister Teresa says, yeah, but it's Easter. He's just going to return in three days. And like oh. everybody just fell off their chair. <laughs> Sister and, and, and then the nicknames for our place, like Sister Sierra recently named dubbed us the Game of Crones. And uh, <laughs> Sister Alice calls our garden the, what does she call it? The Garden, the of, Garden Weedon. of Weedon. The Garden of Weedon. Uh, so, I mean, we have a lot of fun playing with words. We also have 420 music practice every day. And um, the film, we're play? starting to, uh, we sing, we sing, anarch, we're like a barbershop quartet and we sing anarchist activist songs like, Please don't fuck up the world, Mr. President. Sung like Marilyn Monroe to a happy birthday, Mr. President. But this is please don't. Oh, can I say that on here? I'm sorry. You have to beat me. That's the name of the song. I didn't write it. Ollie did. We sing Kavanaugh. We sing There's Nothing Like a Wall. We sing um, <laughs> All About His Bass. So we have like a repertoire of songs that we sing. And now we're getting requests to take that on the road. So I think the film has been overall good for getting the message out, even if it makes me look gangster. I think we're in the age of authenticity and people don't really care if I look gangster is what it seems. Sister Kate, I got to thank you for being so authentic. This has been a truly incredible uh, opportunity for me. Um, I, I, we, we have to cut this short. Um, where can people find uh, that Kickstarter and, and you know, uh, find your products? Just give me all the plugs. Okay, so it's GoFundMe, save-the-sisterhood. There's more to it from banking attack. But if you put in save-the-sisterhood, our campaign's going to pop up. So you can help us just get survival bridge money uh, while we're under attack from this, the banks. Or if you know somebody in the banking industry that can help us, write us at support at sistersofcbd.com. If you're interested in growing in your own order in your own corner of the world, we have orders in New Zealand, England, and Canada, and Mexico. Sisters also write support at sistersofcbd.com. And our website, we're still up. We're still running product. We're still selling products, sistersofcbd.com. Sister Kate, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to thank come on the show. Thank you, and I will be on your show anytime. And seriously, you and your mom need to come out for a moon ceremony. I, I, I think I think we need a moon ceremony. I, th I, I think, think the world needs a moon ceremony. Um, so this has been lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
You can find more episodes of the Gontrepreneur.com podcast in the podcast section of Gontrepreneur.com and in the Apple iTunes store. On the Gontrepreneur.com website, you will find the latest cannabis news and cannabis jobs updated daily along with transcripts of this podcast. You can also download the Gontrepreneur.com app in iTunes and Google Play. This episode was engineered by Trim Media House. I've been your host, TG Brantfault. Thank you.